catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Hey, this is Stuart Wright of BritFlix.com podcast. Um, now we've managed to elevate ourselves to um, the iTunes library. I found myself uh, technically struggling with um, this podcast. Um, as good as Mike Tack was, the uh, London-based horror filmmaker, as bad my technical skills were. Um, this is actually the second recording of our podcast, and despite my best efforts... Um, there is literally a ghost in the machine later on. Um, so for the vast majority of the podcast, it's fine. And then halfway through, maybe, maybe a bit later, you will hear the sound of what appears to be my bristles against the microphone. Given the microphone is in the computer, that's fairly difficult for me to achieve um, without hindering all the recording. So... I can only apologise for the little interference. Thankfully, Mike does most of the talking, and I was trying to stay perfectly still because I could, I could hear this interference at my end, but uh, couldn't couldn't for reasons beyond me stop it. So um, hopefully, won't enjoy your listening too too much. Um, so I'll uh, let you head over to uh, my conversation with Mike Tack, writer and director of horror films. It's the podcast. It's the podcast. Mm. So uh, it's just a shame that I freaking lost it. Right, yeah. welcome to right, welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. I've got with me filmmaker Mike Tack. Hello, Mike. Hello, everyone. Good to, the, good to have you on the show. I won't, I won't lie to the audience. This is the second attempt at this interview. Um, yes. Technology technology got the better of us the first time around, Mike. Is that right? Yeah, it got the better of you, Stuart. Yes. It did, it did. <laughs> it's, it's not unusual, and um, nah. I'm, I'm hoping not to repeat it, but every time there is yeah. a glitch, it sort of makes me paranoid for the entire duration of interviews. But yeah. that's not the reason that we've come together for this chat. There are two reasons that I've got Mike on the podcast. One is the world premiere of his short film, One Careful Owner. And mm -hmm. the second reason is his entry to the ABCs of Death 2 competition, which we'll yeah. talk about later. So first off, do you want to tell us about the world <clears throat> premiere of One Careful Owner? First of all, do you want to tell us about One <clears throat> Careful Owner first? What is it? Um, yeah, it's an 11, sort of 11 to 12 minute short uh it's my second film only because uh, it's, it's almost a year 
to, to far two weeks that I showed my first film, which is my first foray into filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the first one was uh, called The Domestic, and that was more of a, there wasn't much dialogue. In fact, there wasn't, uh, there's only one line of dialogue in the entire film, which made, you know, it's a good way to start if you're if someone who's going to start a film is to, is to just not have dialogue because then it's sort of, people can act um, if they're, you know, depending on what you want them to do. People can physically react and act quite convincingly, but when it comes to delivering meaningful dialogue, that's when you need actors or people that have had some experience, generally speaking. Um, so this next one, I, through uh, my first showing at the Feast on Film in Crouch End, uh, I knew a couple of guys from Fright Fest, uh, which is a UK horror festival, in, including yourself. And uh, although you weren't there, which I was very pleased about, you didn't turn up. But uh, um, yeah, I met a guy called Clive Ashenden, and uh, he knew an actor called Richard Knott. And Clive does directing and a bit of acting. And because um, I'd mentioned I'd had this idea for this story about a, a car salesman who's alone on the, the, the vehicle lot on a Sunday. And a guy comes in and he go, he starts to sell this car to this fella. And this, this fella just comes across as being very awkward and belligerent. And, uh, but then things change for the worst for one of them. Um, so it's a bit like uh, a classic sort of a mini, a mini version of a Hitchcock story where, you know, it's an everyday man in unusual, it's suddenly turned, his world's turned upside down with the unusual circumstances. And then there's a, a narrative and a, a morality play, and uh, it touches on a number of my pet hates, and uh, it uh, hopefully concludes satisfactory. One review, uh, I sent it to some guy on a blog, and he gave it sort of eight out of ten, said it was one hell of a twelve minutes. So I thought that was a pretty good review. And what would what would be some of the main influences in terms of um, the, the kind of film you've made? Um, well, my well. My, my main influence over any film, really, is probably the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's something we, we sort of briefly touched on when we did this the first time around, was that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, is a low-budget indie main mainstream sort of feature film that uh, really, um, you know, you said it didn't play by all the rules, and, it, and it, it was just like the way that you... I like the way that you don't actually see much, but your mind thinks that it's seeing more than it is. And that's sort of what I did. And this is a violent horror film. It's a very brutal um, love story, is the way I like to put it. And um, it had a great influence on me. I mean, obviously, Alfred Hitchcock was one of my biggest influences, was Brian De Palma, you know, Dario Argento's earlier stuff. Um, those are the main people, and John Carpenter, of course, is another great director that has influenced me. So I think in a, there's a mishmash <coughs> that's gone into my psyche uh, over the years, from watching Hammer films as a young lad to just—I mean, I'm totally my feet are buried deep in the horror genre. I'm only going to make horror films. It's—it's it's what I love uh, myself, and it's what I think I'm going to be reasonably good at doing you know mike i wouldn't want you doing any other genre to be honest with you from my conversations with you yeah probably not it's probably a good idea that i stay <laughs> away from romantic comedy so so the re that you've got a um you've just 
attended your world premiere. So do you want to tell? Yeah. Britflix. Well, the world premiere. Well, the, the convoluted story to this is that basically, one careful owner, we actually finished it in April. Sorry, in June because I couldn't get hold of it. We shot it in in November, mm. but I couldn't get hold of a computer to edit it. You know, we're talking. You know, I, I, the first film, I, I sort of hassled someone we knew to sort of edit it in Final Cut Pro, and I sort of. I basically edited it, but told him, you know, which bits I wanted cut when, and he he just pressed the buttons. So until I actually forked out from my own Mac Mini and stuck it under my TV, then I sort of got to grips with what I wanted to do because I actually liked the whole process. I think I'm a bit of a George Romero in that, which is another one of my influences, is that I like to film it, you know, write the story, film it, cut it, um, the only thing I'm, I'm not so good on is the music, but I've got my stepson, Carl, who uh, has got a degree with, with honours, actually, in music, and uh, we work together on the soundtrack. He does most of it, and then I just give him my 10 pence worth of things which I think, you know, tonally need adjusting or, or something like that, you know, but he's pretty much spot on with everything. Um, and anyway, so this is going to be, this premiere, I, I thought, you know, I thought, well, I want to get this film out to film festivals in a big way. So I, I, I've blatted out a load of cash to various film festivals, a lot of them in the UK mm-hmm. uh, and some abroad, you know, and I, I'm not for one second did I think, oh, if I get one abroad, say in America or wherever, I'm going to go there. No way, not in a million years. And what's happened is all the British festivals have basically come back. I mean, I don't know how many submissions. I know they get a lot of submissions for short films. But none of them came back with anything, if they did come back at all, you know. Okay. Most of them don't even send you a bloody email to say thank you up yours, you know. So, um, anyway, so the Mile High Horror Film Festival said they loved it and they, and they thought it was an excellent film and they were going to show it in their short film programme on the, on the Saturday. Just rewind a second there, Mike. So where's the Mile High? <coughs> Denver. Denver, in Colorado. Colorado, USA. So that's a little five, bit removed from London, England, is it not? It's five and a half thousand miles away by two <laughs> with two plane journeys, and uh, you know, I mean, now how huge America is. It didn't really hit me until I was flying over it for two and a half hours just to get from one piece of land to the other, and I still hadn't gone right across the country. Um, anyway, so I thought, well, you know what? I looked into their festival, and it's run by this guy called Tim Schultz and his wife Therese, and. The real thing that struck me was when I got the email from them, it had a really nice tone to it. It said, not only are we really thrilled, we think your film's great, we'd love to host you. That's the word they use. We'd love to host you and we'll pick you up from the airport from what, and take you to your hotel and we'll arrange transport for the rest of the festival. If you can make it, it'd be wonderful. And that was, to me, was like a breath of fresh air. From, no way did uh, you get that. Yeah. Fantastic. You know, it, was, it was the whole vibe of it. It was friendly and... I think there are some festivals, particularly in the UK, that have got, I don't want to say big for their boots, but they've got, they've got so big that they're, they're missing something. They're, they've become too commercial. And I think that extends right down to the fact that they get, you know, badgered and, and pushed around to have certain films, i.e. crap films, shown because they're coming out on DVD the next week, mm. you know, on their main screen or on their big list. <clears throat> So they can secure maybe a decent film for their punters. So I'm fully aware that, you know, 
if when you get to be a huge festival that you know this could become an issue if you want to start making money off it rather than doing it for the love of the film and the fans but let's stick to the positive then so when you're in denver Mm. what was let's keep the uh, so you were picked up from the airport by the guys who were in the denver one yeah they picked us up and we took him out for a drink and we had a bison burger which is delicious (laughs) and uh and then we went back to our hotel next day there was a shuttle from the hotel that we took and we went down there and they welcomed us with open arms and it was a beautiful low you know they they were at the alamo draft house which if you're not aware are one of the best cinemas i've ever been to in the world they got no, the no, sound I know you, talk, you know, explained this to me last time but let me just because yeah. we lost that recording so go on tell tell us why these cinemas are so revered well one of the best things is they put <clears throat> a notice out in front of you it says mobiles off no talking you won't be admitted after the film starts and because they've got they serve meals uh, on this table array, so every seat has a, a view, with, and there's like a runway in front of every set of chairs and tables. And what it means is these these ninja type waiters whiz up and down, taking your order. There's like a light underneath the table with a menu that slides into it, and you you write on a piece of paper what you want. And then at the end of the show, after you've had your food, they brought it out, you know, during the film. They you then put your money on the the little tray, and off they scoop. And um, <clears throat> and, and that's a, a you know it's not it's not like your smelly you know some you know when you sit in the cinema and some geezer sits next to you with a horrible pile of nachos with his girlfriend eating pickles throughout the whole thing you know yeah. scrunching away through bags of toffees um it's it's really civilized and it's uh their cinemas are beautifully they're obviously new there's only a few of them in the states maybe about six or seven is that right so they yeah they only cherry pick there are certain locations and they are well known. There's even an advert on YouTube from Alamo House where someone phoned up after getting ejected because they will kick you out. And the great thing about it is if someone's winding you up by being noisy or whatever, you can just write on this thing where these people are. And when these guys come along pretending they're taking order, they'll look at this and the management will throw them out after giving them a warning if they don't stop. So it seems like a sensible approach to cinemas to me. Well, it's, it's cinema for people that want to watch films. It's for film mate, film goers, you know, true cinema people, not people that want to sit there for half hour texting their mate about, you know, what they had for lunch. So, so um, your film then, where, where, where did it show? How many people watching it? Yeah, well, they had they, they what they do, they split the program because each cinema holds about two hundred people. Okay, these are the big screens that they occupied. They had two screens fully dedicated to them. So. When we ours was being screened, it's called a short film program. This is another thing. They actually love short films, the Americans, and uh, they they gave they I think they had like six short film programs with like you know, I don't know about seven or eight films in each program. So a good hour and a half of shorts, like the length of a feature film, hmm. and they would dedicate slots. And we were number four on the Saturday at about ten to five <clears> onwards, uh, and give you an indication they had Doug Bradley from Hellraiser introducing Hellraiser in the other screen and our cinema was still packed check you at the same time it wasn't just because of me there were some great other shorts on there as well <laughs> seriously um there's some really good in fact the ones I saw we were in the the hot the hot bunch <laughs> um and then we did a and a because we were the only guys that had turned up to show our short. There's a guy that had a music video and he was there, but me and Tim, my makeup guy, we were there. 
and they loved it. And in fact, the no, I, no, the, hold on, hold on a second, you know, mate. I've I've seen one careful owner, and there's there's a few there's a few scenes in that film that will uh, have people, you know, crossing their legs and turning away from the screen and the like. Um, they're called button pushes. What was the uh, what was the reaction in the room like? Were you watching what how people responded to your movie? Well, I was so surprised at how amazingly good the film looked that I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. But Tim had a look around and saw everyone wincing in that because I, <laughs> I do put these button presser moments in my films, um, and the things I like to do in terms of manipulating the audience and and seeing because I think that's really effective. If you can actually provoke a reaction from someone. Uh, by them watching just what you filmed and put together, that's that's there's no there's no link between you and them physically, but emotionally you're 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 affecting them, uh, and that's one of the most satisfying things in cinema for me is if you can emotionally sat, you know, affect someone. And I don't mean I don't want to turn them into gibbering wrecks and yeah, and they need therapy, but um, it's that sort of thing that I really uh, get off on. I suppose really is that I enjoy hearing the oohs and ahs and. And seeing them hiding behind their, you know, chair. So after watching the uh, audience reaction and you guys being the only ones to accompany your film in that program, yeah. you um, you got to do a Q and A. So how did yeah. the Q and A go? Well, the Q and A, which you know, Therese, one of the co-directors and wife of Tim Schultz, said she said it was the best Q and A she's done in the four years of been doing the festival. Now, I don't know if that's because we were sort of still a bit half pissed and we we joke around a lot, or the I think the fact was that she said you could actually see everyone's jaws hit the floor when we said I'd filmed it on my 720p iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, and I said the budget cost £235, which is about, I don't know, $350, dollars or something. And what were some of the budgets for people that you were, you were sat with then? How did that compare? Uh, well, I don't know, but all I know is most of the short filmmakers who attended, I chatted to them, their budgets were between six and $10,000. No way. Is, which is like between sort of, you know, three and three to 6,000 um, pounds. So that's one of the, one of the things that I, I pride myself on is that we, even though you get your actors working for free, I still feed everybody and I give them lifts and stuff, but that's where all the, my budget goes. And then maybe on a bit of makeup supplies. The only other thing that really, turns me over sometimes is if I need some particular wardrobe. Yeah. That's the other really big expensive thing because normally I've got the location for free, you know, uh, set dressing. I don't really bother about. I'll just make sure I've got the right location. The one yeah. care is great because we filmed it in the back garden in my recording studio. So I just needed some plastic sheets so everything didn't get covered in blood. But that's a bit of a trademark because I did that in my first film. So if anyone sees the plastic sheets coming out, you know what's happening. Well, uh, um, you've got another trademark, haven't you, as well? Isn't isn't there a suspicion that you're a yeah. foot fetish? Yeah, well, it's not really a foot fetish, but, you know, like Hitchcock always did a cameo and things like that. Well, I thought to myself, well, I don't really want to see my face in, in many of my films particularly. Uh, but I thought, well, I like doing shots of feet at certain points in the film. So if you watch any of my films... Apart from the short adverts I did for Fright Fest, you'll actually see my someone's feet. Sometimes it's a bit bit in your face, and then other times you, it might be just a quick shot that I sneak in there. But I always try to at least have one shot, a close up of someone's feet, and, uh, and that's going to be that's my and trademark. The subliminal message or meaning of the feet is what? The subliminal message of meaning of the feet is. Um, 
something's going to happen. These are going somewhere. Okay. These are going. These are going to a place that is going to be a. There's going to be a reveal. That's what I do it for. So, so now you've had your. Uh, so now, what, what? Sorry, before we conclude on that bit. So while you were out there, did you get to? Uh, you mentioned <clears throat> um, who? Who was there from Hellraiser? Doug Bradley from Pinhead. They had Ken Faree, the uh, the dude from Dawn of the Dead, the R- Romero original, you know, yeah. uh, the tall fella. And then you had, um, oh, Tom Savini, and you had Meg Foster and uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, who appeared in They Live, and Linda Blair from The Exorcist for a 40th anniversary. And did you get so, a chance to talk to any of these people? Yeah, I didn't talk to Linda Blair because she's as mad as a box of frogs about her <laughs> dog sanctuaries and stuff. So we still stayed well clear of her. Plus, they have this bizarre habit of charging people for inter- for signing stuff and having your your picture taken with them. Okay. And l- luckily, I had my picture with Roddy Piper and had my my DVD cover signed, but I I managed to sneak around paying the money. So <laughs> that was a win. Um, Meg Foster signed hers for me for nothing because I said, you know, I just sort of said, you know, she's the one with the, the strange blue eyes. And she's still got the same blue eyes. Obviously, she's a bit older now, but yeah. uh, you could definitely see that, you know, that person inside glinting out at you. Um, Doug Bradley, we chatted to him, but we didn't buy anything. I don't know what he's pissed off about that, but uh, uh, Ken Furry had a long chat with him outside. He likes bangers and mash from the UK, apparently, when he comes over here. He's a genuinely lo- lovely guy. And uh, Tom Savini, all I would say is that um, considering I've followed his career for years and years and he's always come across as being a very gregarious, outgoing, friendly chap, he's actually uh, a miserable dwarf who's got, <laughs> who's overly tanned his face and coloured his hair like Steven Seagal. So he's got issues. So he's, so he's ageing well then? Well... Maybe he doesn't think he is, so he's obviously got some hang up there, but uh, he, he was pretty miserable and he was blaming on altitude sickness. He actually, on, they actually had him for a Life Achievement Award right. and I heard that he was almost trying to bail on that because he wanted to go home or something. And I thought, you, that's a bit ignorant. And not only that, when he, he actually said, oh, I apologise because I've had altitude sickness. What a bullshit. I know that the cinema's a mile high above sea level, but you know, he said, oh, yes, I'm sorry, you know, if I was a bit, you know, I had this altitude sickness. I was going to shout, well, what about the other four days, Tom? What's your excuse for that? But uh, so, anyway, so let's, did not, you, let's not talk did about you... Tom Savini because it, it was a real, real disappointment. Did uh, um, so, so did you feel like real ambassadors going out there, you know, as British filmmakers? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Two cockney-sounding geezers going out there in Denver, we stood out like a sore thumb, and that's good because we're doing it for PR and we're doing it because we wanted to support the film. It's a world premiere because pretty much no other English place wanted it, apart from South End on Sea, which is a great little friendly festival. And I may have another one, my local St Albans Film Festival may be taking it, we don't know yet. Um, in fact, it's actually showed on the same day at Oshkosh in Michigan, which is in the north near mm. New York. They selected it. It's a smaller festival, but they still selected it. And it's shown at Puerto Rico International Horror Film Festival at the end of this month. I think the 23rd of October. So good on you. The Amer- yeah, the Americans get it. The English either don't care or they want named stars in their short films. You know, they want, I don't know, 
Well, let's not worry. Let's them. not worry about the, the negative side. The yeah. positive side. Oh, yeah, you, that's right. There's I mean, people out there who are, who are liking your work. Yeah, that's it. That's the point, and that's the thing. It makes you realise that that what, you, you're not stupid, and and that you have made a good film, and there's something of value there. And to be honest with you, it's it's everyone's been really intelligent and uh, friendly and um, really really enthusiastic and it makes me think that um you know if my potential future in filmmaking success wise is probably going to be across the pond because you know i think they're the ones that are going to you know that get it you know and maybe even if that is because we've got an english way of looking at things or whatever whatever attracts them to it i'm really not that fussed really to be quite honest with you because i think if someone's supporting what you're doing there can't be any better place than the land where Hollywood's come from, really. So before we break off from the Myland, 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 the Mile yeah, High Horror Festival, um, yeah. what would you, apart from obviously seeing your film at the cinema, what what was your what was your highlight of the few days you were out there? <clears throat> the highlight of of the festival was talking to the organisers. After it all finished, we were having a few drinks. And they were just so humble and said they were honoured that they'd had the film there. And, you know, I just I just sort of said that, you know, they've got a fantastic vibe. They've got, I said, you know, just just be careful of um, it getting too big because this will grow. It's going to grow. It's grown year upon year upon year. I mean, they said when they first started, there's only like 20 people in the cinema. Wow. This place, they had thousands through there this time. You know, it was like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, packed. They had Big Bad Wolves showing, Cheap Thrills, We Are What We Are. They had all the all the really good current festival darling films in the horror genre showing there. Okay. So, and they had, it. you know, Eel Katz turned up for his film Cheap Thrills, and I think the guys who did uh, Big Bad Wolves turned up as well. So it's got some kudos and credibility. It's picking up momentum, and I just said to them, keep it. Filmmaker and fan friendly, and don't let the corporate nature of some of these things overtake the fact that they can choose their own films and stamp their own personality on the festival. Because that is what, for me, made it fantastic. Right then, Mike. Thanks for um, taking us through your experiences at the Mile High Horror Festival. Um, now, the second reason that we've got you on here is because you're one of the British filmmakers who have entered a international film competition. Um, yeah. Horror fans out there may have seen um, ABCs of Death, which is, as it sounds, a horror anthology with one film for every letter of the alphabet. And yeah. um, more, uh, people that have been following my podcast will have heard my interview with Jake West, Simon Rumley, and Lee Hardcastle. Lee yeah. Hardcastle was a competition <coughs> the winner. winner. They, oh, they, yeah. they picked 25 directors and they left one space for the general public, as it were, to enter their horror films, and they chose the best. And this time, they're doing the same thing with ABCs of Death 2. And you, Mike Tack, have entered M is for Makeover. So right. do you want to tell us a little bit about M is for Makeover? Yeah. Uh, the, the whole thing about this competition is it is a American sort of based international competition. So I, I clocked that there are about 300 film entries for the first one when it was uh, where Lee Harcastle yeah, deservedly won. Um, 
<clears throat> now, I had an experience with uh, doing a short competition entry for called Six Feet Under for the for the six shortcuts to hell. And, you know, I didn't really get anywhere by the looks of it. And uh, I learned a lot of lessons through doing that. And my lesson I learned was I need to have a triple A quality story idea. Uh, and then I need to pull it off cinematically with lighting and effects and all the rest of it and music uh, to make it absolutely shit hot. Um, and I think I've achieved it. Um, the The actual <clears throat> story is a lot different. It's not like a lot of the entries on the ABCs of death, which are all to do with people coughing up mucus or people jerking off for three minutes or whatever, you know, which, which was a bit of a, a signature thing for the original ABCs of death. And I can understand why some filmmakers may have gone down that route because they thought, well, that worked, you know, was liked in the first film. So I'm going to do something very similar. Um, but I read the remit that they put on the website and they, they want, they want outstanding. They don't want, um, holy shit factor, which they had last year. Okay. They want, they want outstanding. And, um, I hope that what I've done, uh, with the locations and the budget with this, you know, minuscule budget again was 450 pounds, which was 120 quid for insurance to cover the free, we got some airsoft guns for free because we've got real soldiers in it. We've got three real soldiers from the Coldstream Guards that came up with their kit. Um, that's very method of you, Mike. Hey, that's very method of you. That's to, right. To real well, you know, if you want someone wielding a gun, you want a professional, don't you? <laughs> that's true. Um, so, and we hired a special prop for it, which is from World War Two. I won't say what it is, but it cost me eighteen quid for the weekend. And it said, looks absolutely amazing. I spent a lot of time setting up the actual area where the majority of the film was taking place. Um, I faffed around with a couple of builders' lights, and I had a third light uh, to use. Plus, I'm shooting on a DSLR that I bought, a cheap one, a 600D, with a prime lens, 50mm prime lens, to, to give me that quality of picture and image. And also, it means it had a 1.8 f-stop, which basically means you can shoot in low light. So I could really play with the mood of the piece um and if it's something i didn't want to show i wanted to show in a glimpse that's what i did so um, it's called it's a makeover and what's <clears> the what's the basic setup for that one without, well the basic setup it? see the thing is when they announce the films on the website if you go on the abc's of two death website you uh it, all the films say what the m is for and for some films including mine it was designed so that you watch the film like you would have done in ABC's of Death 1. You'd watch the film, and then at the end, the payoff, almost all the punchline, is what the M is for. Yeah, yeah. People are probably thinking, well, what the hell was that for? And then when you do the M, M, M is for makeover, then they go, ah, oh, you know, they get it, and there's yeah, an, yeah, yeah. A, an extra kick at the end of the film. But these, you have to upload, and you tell them what the word is before it starts. So that sort of takes that bit away from you, which is a bit of a shame, but... Anyway, the basic premise is uh, the film opens up, no messing around. There's this massive crate with some strange writing on it, on like a, a, a worn piece of paper, and it's and it's and you just see it coming towards you through like smoke and mist into this building. And then as it's dropped on the ground, you suddenly see there's a whole crowd of people around the table, like like an operating setup. And there's all these soldiers with a with a commander waiting for the arrival of whatever's this thing is. 
um, and it's got chains around it, and uh, and then basically it then goes on from there. Uh, and then, as with all my films, I like to put a twist to the whole piece, is that it then goes to another place entirely, and the full reveal is then made um, with one of the most amazing backdrops in the world. But you'd have to see it to. Uh, well, well, that's and that's the good thing about this competition is that um, I'll be able to put a link up with the podcast. Yeah, and people will be able to watch your film and and, and vote on it, which is important because you you get through to the final twelve, which are then judged by the other twenty five in quotes <coughs> professional directors that have yeah. got a piece showing. Mm. Um, so the, you make the final twelve in one of two ways: you either get Facebook likes. So above the film on the actual web page, you click the like button mm. if you sub if you have got a Facebook account because they've done that to make sure that people have unique clicks and that you know someone hasn't just spammed the site to say oh this is you know to try and get their film up in the rankings. But the uh, but the caveat to that is they've got to get out a jail free card because they also say well only six of those of the highest rated go through, but the other six they decide based on what they think is merit. Okay. So I actually think it'd be great for people to watch. Well, I think people should just watch the film if they fancy it and just, if they can vote for me, then fantastic. No, like no, well, film. it's a global competition and we're Britflix. So <coughs> we want to support yeah. the British filmmakers and we'd like, it'd be a nice double win, wouldn't it, if um, the extra... The well, extra that's film. the only thing I'm thinking of is that I'm thinking, oh, are they even going to have an English winner possibly because they've had one last year? But, you know, I've done my best with this film. I've really pulled out all the stops and... And kicked out what people have. I've shown that. See, I, at the Mile High Festival, I had my little Vita and I went round my, my handheld console with the film on, showing people with headphones. And they all thought it looked amazing and they couldn't believe it cost what it did. So um, it looks like a big budget, almost trailer for a bigger movie. What's the closing date, mate, for the, um, for the competition? Well, as we speak, I mean, the last week or so has seen a flood of new entries. Uh, there was about 50 when I put them on, and now it's gone up to about 150. Yeah. Um, so, as you expect, the, the big boys, the big guns come out towards the end. And you can see in some of the credits, they've got like a massive long list of people, and a lot of them seem to be shooting on red cameras and stuff. But I'm not, I can't moan about that. I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, but I still, even even saying that, I think I've, I've made, you know, looked at what the competition needed and I think our story is eclectic enough and different enough to to maybe offer them something slightly different and at the end of the day whoever's got the letter N and the letter O in the in the proper feature if they do something similar then they're not going to include it because of that because it will look out of place to have something similar next to each other so there's all these variables to take into account. Have, have, they, so, have they announced the directors yet of the other twenty, <clears throat> the other twenty-five? Uh, yeah, I can't remember them all. I know that the the, the Soska sisters are doing it, who did American Mary, which is a fantastic film. Is, is, um, and who is there any other? Is there any British directors named in that list? I, I really can't remember off the top of my head. Actually, I, okay. it is bad of me, but the, trying to it's track down the website is hard enough. Really, to be honest with you, mate. Mm. But uh, oh, I think there's um, I think the directors of Big Bad Wolves are doing one. Okay, okay. Uh, and there's a there's a few other um, well-known films that have completely slipped my mind at the moment. But it is a worldwide. There's I think there's some guy from Africa or something. 
that's doing it. Um, um, all over the shop, all over the shop. Well, look, li- Britflix listeners, um, please check the link that I'll put with the podcast and uh, give my a like so that he can uh, have, a, have yeah. a twofold chance of maybe getting in touch yeah. 12. Well, you know, it, it's a lottery now. I mean, the amount of entries that have flown up there recently, it's going to be, I know I've done the best I possibly can with, with the resource I can. And that's, so. what you, that's, that's what you can hope for. Okay. Right then, Mike. Well, it's fingers crossed for um, ABC's of Death 2. And now we'll move yeah. on to a bit of fun now so you can relax with these next two questions. <laughs> I'm relaxed anyway, mate. <laughs> I was going to say, the tone, the tone never suggested that you were remotely tense. No. Um, but, um, yeah, so what, what I like to ask people is, is to recommend British films. And given we're talking about horror films and given your yeah. extensive knowledge of, um, of horror films, yeah, um, I'd like you, if you could, to recommend our listeners um, an obscure or maybe just an often overlooked British horror film. Yeah, uh, and the one that I did have trouble thinking of, but I... I think now, more so than ever, is the... Uh, I mean, I'm a big Hammer fan, but I think in amongst all the Hammer horror that goes on, I think that the, their version of The Hand of the Baskervilles is a, is a great little film. Um, and you're going to get to see Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee doing sort of different roles. I know that Peter Cushing actually did Sherlock Holmes in the TV series, actually, for the BBC, I think it was. Oh, did he really? Origi- yeah, he did, originally. Oh, okay. um, and uh, <clears throat> the, the, the Hand of the Baskervilles is a great little story. I mean, everyone, the only other film that's non-sort of vampire or Frankenstein or mummy or whatever is always quoted to be Devil Rides Out, because that's one of my favourite hammers of all time. But I actually think this one holds up just as well. It's it's a great little... Obviously, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote a great story. Hmm. Uh, but Cushing is a really, you know, he's a really good, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes. And uh, Christopher Lee... I must Lee admit it's not one I've seen, so I'll have, I'll have to very, check it out. Sorry? It's not one I've seen, so I'll have to check it out. Well, the other thing is it's directed by Terence Fisher. And he, for me, is the the Hammer director who really, who really created the, uh, the core sort of values that... It got them off the ground. Terence Fisher did the original Dracula, did the Curse of Frankenstein, he did The Mummy. Oh, wow. Um, and he did this film. I think he did The Gorgon as well, which is another sort of buried classic um, hammer horror film. I mean, that's that's a great film as well. Um, so Terence Fisher is one of my... He did The Brides of Dracula as well, which is probably, the I think, the best Dracula film. Actually, hasn't, and it hasn't even got Chris Lee in it. Um, <laughs> so... Take from that what you will, but Chris Lee's great. He's superb in Devil Rides Out, and uh, he's su- he, everyone's great in this Hound of the Baskervilles by Hammer Films, and I believe it's made in 1966. Maybe I might be a bit off on my dates, but it's that t- sort of time, you know, after Brides of Dracula. And, and what do you and think they the get Mummy. right then, as, as as kind of as as it, as a horror film? What do they get right well, in the Hound of Baskervilles? Well. They, they they just get the tone right. It's got Andre Morel in it, who's a great character actor as as the Watson. Mm. He was the guy who was the doctor in Plague of the Zombies, uh, which is another classic Hammer film. And um, they got the tone right. The acting's great. Uh, Chris Lee's playing a, a quite weedy sort of person. He's not playing a very strong character. He's playing like an upper-class twit. Mm. Um, and Peter Cushing... Like in true, you know, sort of Hand of the Baskerville style, he doesn't actually appear. 
unless he's in sort of disguise or something, and he he befuddles, uh, you know, Watson by suddenly appearing and finding out these things. There's a great, my favourite scene in the film is where um, he's got a dagger and the shot where he he throws this dagger when he's grilling this bloke with a big beard, another great character actor, I can't remember his name, but he lobs the dagger and it's like, it, it's almost like it's thrown right at the camera where this table is. Mm. It's probably just done in a cutaway, but it's really effective. But the way Cushing delivers the line and then it cuts to the throwing of the dagger is, is just classic hammer for me, really. And Terence Fisher is great. Looks sumptuous as well. You know, no. open moors and, you know, howling monsters and, um, you know, and I think it's uh, James Bernard's, you know, sort of music, you know, clattering yeah. music that he puts in it. Oh, well, I'll, def I'll definitely check it out. Yeah, um, I think you should. It's good. I will, I will. Um, and the, finally, the one the one question I'd like to ask everybody is um, whether they be actor, director, writer. If there was a, yeah. and, and from your point of view, it'd be from a director's point of view, if you could reboot... Yeah. Any movie, yeah. what would you what would you be uh, what would you be relishing <clears throat> the challenge of directing? Uh, Alien Five. So you're going to do the fifth <laughs> in the series. Yeah, I'm going to do the one that brings back the Colonial Marines and it brings back the conflict to Earth, uh, and it will be kick-ass because I like using smoke machines <laughs> and guns. Um, and if anything, that's if you look at Emmys for Makeover, it's a bit of a cross between that and another very famous sort of horror film, which I'm not going to mention because it will give it away. Okay. But uh, but yeah, I could I could I could do that. I could do a day. I mean, you know, I could do a job with Ridley Scott on that. But mine would have. Well, it would be a cross between Ridley Scott and David Cameron and David Fincher, and I think he did a good job on Alien Three. If you see the proper cut, he just got corralled by the pushed around by the studio. Um, I, funny enough, I remember reading. Um, I think it was in Total Film. They did um, sort of not not some, what's the opposite of Sacred Cow, where, where they kind of went, you know, lost classic or misunderstood film. Yeah, did, Alien Three is one Alien of those. Three. Alien Three is brilliant because what Fincher did was take it back to the haunted house where trapped, we can't escape, and this this lone monster that we can't find is going around picking us off. Um, he just took it a stage further than Ridley by having it running like the clappers. And and uh, actually mating or or the actual uh, what do you call it the um, oh god the face hugger jumped on a dog and it and it came out of a dog stump which gave it all this sort of canine sort of running abilities. Um, but I guess but, I guess when you're following aliens, yeah, that was always gonna that was always gonna be a tough ask, wasn't it? Anyone because... who follows aliens and goes back to one alien from eight, which Cameron had, he only had eight rubber suits or six. Yeah, um, which is patently obvious when you actually see the film <laughs> again but it just goes to show you don't you, you speak, it's almost like he, he cameron give him his credit he did what the indie filmmakers do he made do he said i want six or eight of these these things and with that i can create the impression that there's all these characters and you don't need all this bullshit cgi where you have thousands of them in some massive shot because everyone knows it's bloody cgi so why not just stick to what's good and that's close tight confined spaces running the hell away from some horrible creature which the design is phenomenal and never been beaten in the history of cinema as far as i'm concerned the alien by geiger is the most impressive character monster design ever maybe only in competition with rob Bottin's the thing 
as far as I'm concerned. I don't think, uh, I mean, the Predator's pretty good, but the Thing and the Alien are just, you know, I could do a crossover, couldn't I? The Alien Thing. Well, um, I think, but... I think, that, I think that um, you're the first person to suggest you'll do the next in the series, so that's a that's a breakthrough yeah. from from this question. So uh, I thank you for that. I've had um, J.K. Amalu wanted to go back to the original Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and do it properly. Mm. That was his. He didn't want to reboot the film. He wanted to go back to the book. Uh, that'd be a bit too gothic for me. <laughs> Even though I like gothic films, it'd be a bit sort of oh, going, there's no technology. There's no pulse rifles. <laughs> you know I mean? Well, on uh, on that, te- just just one last thing. What's what's the dead? I don't think we still said. What's the deadline? For people to vote for your film? Uh, they just got to watch it, and you don't have to watch it, but I'd prefer if you did. And then Facebook like it before thirty first of October. Thirty first of then, October is when. They... Yeah, the competition closes, and then literally within a week they announce the final twelve, and then the other twenty five directors get given these, and they announced. There's a bit of a mixed message going on. They said middle of December or Christmas Day, so I'm not quite sure whether they got their dates mixed up. But sure enough, you'll find out by the end of December who's won the slot and the five thousand dollar prize money, which is nice. If you you know, which would go, which would just go straight on equipment on any of them, really. But it's mainly mainly because it can get a chance to get into the fully fully fledged feature film and get distributed on VOD, and it could be a massive calling card for someone like me who's getting on a bit. And um, but you know, if they think you've got the vision and what it takes, then you just don't know where these opportunities will come from. Which is also what happened at the Mile High Horror Fest. I've got made so many contacts. I mean, I've got the Blair Witch Project guy Dan Merricks. He's on my Facebook, and I've got. Um, Jeffrey Reddick, who wrote the screenplay for Final Destination 1 and 2. Um, I've got Ken Faree's private email address, you know. You don't get that sort of thing in the UK. No, you don't get that sort of thing sat at your laptop either, do you? So it's, no. you've, got, you've made a film and you've got out there. So I think that's the lesson for all yeah. filmmakers who are listening it, to this, is yeah, you've got to I mean, do it. You, yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, you do these things because you love it and, and you'd be the biggest fool in the world to think that... that there's any God-given right to you to be successful at it. Um, I think the best thing is it's just like planting little seeds in your allotment. You just plant the seeds, and then what you do, you don't just walk away and ignore it and say, oh, yeah, well, if it grows, it grows. What you do, you do have to water it a bit. You know, you, you do have to, you know, grease the wheels in order to maybe make things happen or be in the right position to for when they do happen. You're never going to, you're nothing, you know, if you want to sit there, uh, and say, oh, I'm the best filmmaker in the world, and, but no one's seen my film, and I'm sat in my house doing bugger all and expecting people to knock on your door. It ain't going to happen. No, no, um, no, that's, that's, that's sound advice. Well, yeah. look, th- thank you very much, Mike, for uh, coming on the podcast. Yeah, and it's been um, great. It's been I'm great glad to you. say that um, this time we've recorded successfully. So we'll. Thank we'll, God for that. Next time we speak. <laughs> Hallelujah. We'll... <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, look, thank you very much, Mike. Yeah, cheers to you. This is the story of the one. 
As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.